Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is September 12th, 2018, joined by Michael Warren and Jim Swift of the Weekly Standard. So you guys battening down the hatches for the hurricane? I, I, bought, a ton, a ton, I bought a ton of water for my, my twin daughters who are almost a year old. Mm-hmm. And then uh, last night I waited for probably 45 minutes to check out at, uh, the BJ's warehouse store, only to find out this morning that the uh, all the models are saying it's going south. So... Uh, I basically wasted fifteen dollars on hundred or two bottles of water. Yeah, but you still got the water, right? I yeah. think I saw you tweeted about that that you were kind of surprised how heavy water was. Yeah, apparently it's like eight pounds a gallon. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've never you've never been hiking. This is like one of the things about like backpacking, which um, which I did uh, in high school, uh, backpack part of the Appalachian Trail, and it's like. You, you do all these things, you know, you, you pack like this super lightweight uh, stove with the sterno and, uh, you know, you keep all that. But what ends up weighing you down is the water, which is extremely heavy, even though it's, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem that way. So the, the irony in all of this is when I was in first grade, I won my entire uh, K through eight uh, science fair. I beat the eighth graders with my project, which was the distillation and filtration of water. I built a water filter, and and by I, I mean my dad, because you know that's that's what happens when you're in first grade. Um, you know, so I, I it was just you know it's just like oh I I could just build one of these water filters, but uh, you know I mean it, it, Jim, it, I, I'm I'm guessing you don't have a lot of opportunities to tell that story. No. <laughs> So I, I'm, I'm I'm taking advantage of the weekly standard podcast. So, yeah, while 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 the hurricane is barreling toward the Mid Atlantic, uh, Charlie, we, uh, my family was planning on leaving on Friday um, for a very short beach trip uh, to the eastern shore of Virginia, uh, where um, currently the Department of Emergency Management of Virginia uh, has the the tiny little beach town that we were planning on going to is like in the number one flood zone uh, for right there on the bay so uh i think we'll be staying home uh or or you could get a really deep discount yeah well the the question here is am i going to get my money back uh for what Uh. what i pay for the deposit i i'm imagining that the guy i rented the place from is is currently evacuating so i'm going to give him a couple days before i sort of really start banging on the door and say hey can i get my money back please so well gentlemen you know that 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 here in wisconsin we do not have hurricanes we have mosquitoes but we do not have hurricanes (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, hey, we, we'll, we'll pick up and move the weekly standard all to, to Wisconsin. We, we, so. we have we have other issues as well, including the, you know, the nine months of snow and all of that. Yeah, uh, well, okay, know. so let's uh, let's shift to uh, things that are happening that we should probably talk about before the hurricane wipes everything else off of uh, uh, off of the news. Um, now, now, Michael, you had a very widely read piece last week where you were speculating uh, about the possible authorship of that uh, anonymous New York Times editorial. H- have any uh, updated thoughts? Uh yeah, well, thanks yeah, thanks for bringing it up, Charlie. All four of the people that I suggested have now denied that they wrote it, which doesn't well, mean no, doesn't mean doesn't, in no. anything really. But um, yeah, no. so um, right now, I think the leading person um, on my list that I sort of personally thought um, was 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 the person was Kevin Hassett, who's the mm-hmm. uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He has now denied it. The other three, uh, I think I said Pompeo, uh, Dan Coates, and uh, and and Larry Kudlow, they've all denied it. Um, so we're kind of at this weird place where it seemed like the White House was going to go kind of um, full scorched earth, try to find who this person is. 
Um, but they're in the same position that we all are, those of us who are trying to figure out who the who the op-ed writer is, um, which is that if you did write it, you're not going to admit it. Um, I mean, you would have put your name on it if, if, if you were. So um, I have a couple of leads that I'm not I'm not, I'm actually trying to report out that I'm I'm not um, I've not been successful at so and I don't think I will be but um, but I think it, it the 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 writer remains at large. Yeah, I'm 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 going to stick with my I prepare to be underwhelmed that it's going to be not not one of the top tier guys you know probably you know some assistant secretary of something or other although I'm I'm willing to engage in baseless speculation by um, retweeting people who say it's Nick Ayers. But but I, but I I have no idea. Yeah, I mean that that's you know, all it, we're it, doing at this point is is baseless speculation. <laughs> it, but what, what, then it wouldn't be fun if if we weren't baselessly speculating. Okay, so uh, have either of you two gentlemen read the Bob Woodward book yet? Uh, yes, I did. In fact, I just as we're talking uh, about twelve hours ago, I filed my review for the Weekly Standard of Fear, and uh, I've I've read the book and I have thoughts on it. I suppose give us give, give us give us a preview because uh, it, it's not up yet. So what's what's your what's your bottom line? What does Michael Warren think about uh, Bob Woodward? Bottom line is Bob Woodward has. Um, a, a problematic approach, and that does not start with this book, Fear. Um, and uh, you know, uh, given his um, uh, proficiency, or rather, his um, uh, let me back that up, uh, and given the way that he uh, seems to write two or three books about every president, uh, it won't be the last time he does this. But he 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 tends to um, conflate. Uh, sources. So we have no idea whether when we're reading an account of something that's happening in the Oval Office, the Situation Room, or on Air Force One, um, if Woodward has one source for this conversation, if he has four sources for the conversation, if uh, that conversation is uh, – th- th- those sources are agreeing on his characterization of the conversation or they disagree. Um, and I think this is a sort of a, a, a big problem with uh, his account of uh, – his, his, his entire book and his sort of his, his genre of journalism. And I say all that as a preface to uh, the point I'm going to make, which is that uh, barring all of that the description of Trump, the description of the way he um, uh, he describes uh, the way he describes how the uh, administration operates under Trump is basically totally plausible and uh, and believable. And he names names, um, and I think we've already seen this where he said essentially Woodward has said, "Look, there are uh, there are names, there are dates, there are events." Um, people should uh, should should dispute them. Uh, the people I name in the book should dispute them if uh, if they think they're wrong, but um, they're not wrong. So that's kind of where we are, and and that's kind of where I leave leave the book. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're further along than I am. I'm listening to the audio version because I've been backordered on Amazon.com, and uh, you know there there are and most of these things have been have been reported out. Uh, you know the dazzling details, the story of uh, Gary Cohn. Taking a memo off of uh, off of the desk, the one that would have canceled the trade agreement with with Korea, you know some of the discussions of the you know debates in the Situation Room about you know why are we uh, continuing to, uh, to to support Taiwan and Korea, and they the the one thing he has done is he ha- he provides context about how how really alarming some of the things the president wanted to do and and the real uh, high level of anxiety. Um, I just got to the section where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff goes to see Lindsey Graham to express uh, concerns that the president uh, wants to work up uh, a preemptive strike against Korea, which apparently generals at Dunford uh, thought would be disastrous. 
what, yeah, I, I have to admit, here's my unpopular opinion about all of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to, to change it, and I probably will change it as I get further in the book. Um, I don't have a problem with the use of anonymous sources because I don't think there's any other way to, to do this, Correct. and I find most of it to be you know, generally reliable and, and credible. But also, th- this White House has been so thoroughly reported, and there's been so much information that's come out over time. You know, I'm listening to this and reading through this and, and thinking, well, what about this? What about this? You know, all the things that were you know, not covered. And maybe it's because 2017 and 2018, there was so much going on. The zone was so flooded that it's impossible to report on all of the different aspects. So you do get the sense that you're hearing, you know, certain narrative lines. But I wonder about other things that were going on as as well. But and I, this is where I come back to the New York Times uh, op-ed piece that is in some ways a, an unfortunate distraction because we're talking about who wrote it rather than the substance because the New York Times op-ed piece really doesn't make any allegations that are not thoroughly documented in Woodward's book um, and thoroughly documented in much of the other reporting that's gone on over the last uh, year and a half. So, Jim, are you going to sit down and read this book or are you just going to – or are you going to be like most people and sort of read the highlights? You know, un- unlike movies where uh, I-, I don't like going to movie theaters, I'll wait till it comes out on HBO or Amazon Prime or one of these sorts of things. Uh, I-, I probably will. And, you know, I- I'm lucky enough to work in an industry where we-, we get copies of these books. But a question I have for, for both you and for Mike is I, I believe all of us read Michael Wolf's File- Fire and Fury. And I- I'm interested to see uh, in a how you guys might compare and contrast that book with this book, because you know that that was kind of the first sort of barn burner book of the the you know inside details of the Trump administration. So, not having read or listened to any any of Woodward's book, I'm I'm interested to hear what you guys have to see uh, say about um, you know h- how the two might be similar mm-hmm. or different. Michael, well, I think the level of detail that Woodward provides is is greater than Wolf's um, and. Uh, and he, I mean, the bottom line is he has a reputation that's much better than Michael Wolff's, yeah, no um, and that that means a lot in in this situation, um, uh, in this in this question. Um, but I think it's a good one, Jim. That um, it, I was thinking about that as I was reading Woodward's book. It was going, how is this substantively different um, than than the Michael Wolff book that everybody kind of agreed was also uh, sensational and, and and the sourcing was kind of one-sided. Um, and I think it ultimately goes back to, de- to detail. Um, and it's very clear, uh, as opposed to the Wolf book, which was so heavy on on Steve Bannon as a source. Um, Bannon, look, Bannon will talk to anybody. So, uh, you know, he's, a, he's definitely a source in the Woodward book. There's no question. Um, but there are other sources and from other sides of, of these questions. Um, the The I, I don't doubt the sourcing of this, and I agree with you, Charlie, that anonymous sources uh, in and of themselves are not inherently bad. I think the problem with reading through this and the way it's written and the style in which it's written, which mm-hmm. is very smooth, easy to read, uh, almost clinical uh, uh, approach to this where you feel like you – almost as Woodward is providing the voice of God and, and as if God himself is telling us exactly what happened, the problem is for a reader is – we, we have no idea unless you're really so, sort of sophisticated and kind of read through the lines. 
is this story again? Is this story from one person's perspective? Yeah. Um, Who is talking to God? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a problem. Receipts. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, Can I say one thing quickly about my favorite anecdote in this, which is um, uh, in this entire book, which I haven't seen get a lot of play, and I I mentioned it in the review, um, which happened during the transition. So uh, it's all about uh, the meetings at Trump Tower, you know, where Trump is bringing in people, uh, wanting them to work in his administration. And Jared Kushner, the the presidential son-in-law, brings in Gary Cohn uh, from Goldman Sachs uh, uh, to, to meet Trump for the first time. And this is, again, a very clearly a chapter and a section that's influenced and, and, and informed by Gary Cohn talking to Bob Woodward is, uh, is my guess. Um, and he describes basically how Cone wowed Trump with, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, uh, even things on which he disagrees with Trump. Sort of, he, he he presents very well to Trump. He's talking about interest rates, and and Trump talks about how why why can't the United States just borrow money and it's so cheap right now and, and uh, just borrow more more borrow more money. And Cone kind of explains gently, well, that actually wouldn't make sense. Here's a better thing to do, and he offers these great this great advice. And Trump is kind of floored by the whole thing. So, wow, this guy's great. Um, and he's trying to – he's like, well, what can we make you? You know, what, what, what job can we give you? Can we give you anything? Can we give you, you know, a deputy – he says, I don't want to be a deputy secretary of anything. He's like, well, what about intelligence? No, I don't want to do that. And then finally Trump says, um, God, well, I, I, wish, I wish I had named you secretary of treasury. Why, why, did, why didn't I name you? Why didn't I name this other guy? The other guy is the current secretary of treasury, is um, Steve Mnuchin, who is sitting, sitting right in there. the room. And uh, the, the last little detail of this story, which is fantastic. Fantastic is that uh, so the, it had not been announced actually publicly that Mnuchin was Trump's pick in selection, uh, and so before Cohn, according to Woodward, before Cohn even leaves Trump Tower, they're walking in the lobby, and the TV is showing five minutes after this meeting uh, uh, announcement. You know, uh, we we have learned that Steve Mnuchin is the uh, is, is Trump's pick for Secretary of Treasury, and, and Jared suggests to Cohn, uh, yeah, I think you you spooked uh, uh, Mnuchin enough that he he or somebody close to him leaked it. So. It's just a great story, and it's a it's a perfect example of how kind of how terrible of a boss Trump uh, must be to work for. No, I, I love that. I, I thought you were going to also mention that that during the course of that conversation where they're talking about deficits, where the president uh, says says to Cole, "Well, why is that a problem? Why don't you just print more money?" Uh, <laughs> right. Mr. President, it mint, really mint, work that way. Mint the coin, Charlie. Mint the coin. The trillion dollar coin, right? That's one of those stories that you really hope is not true, but there are a lot of those uh, like that. Now, go make your question, Jim. Uh, the difference is the uh, you know fire and fury in, in in retrospect, you know, had just so much bullshit in it that it, it really undermined the overall picture. Also, I was struck by what you, you just made, Michael, about uh, Steve Bannon, who apparently will talk to anybody because he was the central source in Wolf's book and clearly um, spent a lot of time talking with Woodward because there's an awful lot of Bannon stuff that happens to be there. Okay, I want to talk about uh, some of these polls that are out right now, including a report in the, uh, in the Washington Post that uh, Republicans are actually now uh, getting very, very concerned about the possibility of losing the Senate, which did not seem that likely even a few uh, days ago. But before that, the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Look, with all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where your data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email 
could put your private information at risk. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. They know what you're looking at. Not only can they record your browsing history, they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. Well, that's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, your phone, your tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click, and it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting all of your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month, and it is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. So you can actually protect your online activity starting today. And you can find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash standard for three months free with a one-year package. So visit expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Now, gentlemen, um, we have up on the uh, the uh, Weekly Standard website the swing seat model that's put together by David Byler, and it's really, um, I, I think, solid work that now projects something like, I didn't have a chance to check it this morning, but about 60% chance that Senate Republicans will keep control of the upper house. And yet there seems to be a lot of anxiety bubbling up uh, about um, about some of these 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 races, including Texas. So, Jim Swift, let's just start with you. How how reasonable are those concerns, given the fact that that while, you know, that the House dynamic seems to favor Republicans right now, the I'm sorry, Democrats right now, the 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 Senate map seems overwhelmingly tilted to the Republicans. So yeah. is, is this is this just like sending up flares like, uh, hey, let's not fall asleep, or is there genuine anxiety? Well, I, I think there should be genuine anxiety because if you you look back to one, two, three cycles, the the Senate Republicans have had very propitious maps uh, that have given them you know the opportunity to retake the Senate, which they eventually did, and you know. Year after year, we we blew easy races. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, Texas with Beto O'Rourke and uh, Ted Cruz is is it's potentially blowing what should be one of the easiest races. I mean, this is Texas after all. This isn't Kristen Cinema versus Martha McSally in Arizona, where the the demographics of Arizona are rapidly changing, and there you know the the politics at play there are a little befuddling. Ted Cruz is an unlikable guy. And he's done everything he can to support President Trump after he was kind of the last man standing. And, you know, Beto O'Rourke is this kind of nerdy guy and whether he's Robert or Beto and all these other sorts of things. I would still be surprised. I mean, I'm not David Byler. I'm not an expert on polling. I I, I just kind of see things as I uh, interpret them as from a cultural standpoint and, and, and what I see of the the. the the politics of the state. It would be very interesting to me if Beto O'Rourke just kind of came out of nowhere and just cleaned Ted Cruz's clock, so Ooh. to speak. But the but the that polls would, that would be a shock. Though, but right? the polls are showing it's it's relatively tight, which um, 
you know, I, 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 I've talked to some people who suggest that um, maybe that doesn't mean Beto O'Rourke wins, but it, it does portend poorly for some of these swing uh, House districts, actually, where he's able to uh, – Beto's uh, enthusiasm uh, for Beto O'Rourke is um, bringing out people uh, to vote in places like uh, Pete Sessions uh, District. He's a Republican in the Dallas area. It's a very uh, – whose uh, district went for Hillary Clinton. Will uh, Hurd, maybe. Uh, uh, Will Hurd, perhaps, uh, down on the border. Mm. Um, Charlie, I think I think the 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 sixty percent chance of Republicans keeping the Senate is kind of misleading. That 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 mm. David Byler's, um, and and I don't think I don't think Byler would disagree with what I'm about to say. Um, that's actually relatively low, given how good the map ought to be for Republicans. That forty percent chance for Democrats. I mean, mm. if you're a Republican strategist, you're a Republican uh, running a, a, a an independent expenditure group for these Senate races. Forty uh, percent chance that you guys could lose. I don't think Mitch McConnell is sleeping well, knowing that. That could be the case. Um, and so maybe this doesn't mean actually that Democrats end up taking uh, the 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 uh, control of the Senate, but what it does mean is that resources start being have to be reallocated to places like Texas, uh, to places mm-hmm. like Tennessee, actually, where I think Democrats have a much better chance than even in Texas of taking a Republican held seat. Um, and so that that sort of changes uh, the calculus. That money question, that resource question, changes the calculus, and and that should be concerning uh, for Republicans. Well, I mean, and, and and overshadowing all of this, of course, are the are the presidents. Approval ratings, which have uh, have dropped in the last several polls. So let's just run through this. I mean, CNN is down to thirty-six uh, percent. Uh, ABC, Washington Post, thirty-six percent. Uh, Gallup, forty-one percent. Uh, the Independent uh, Business Daily, uh, thirty thirty-six percent. Uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, thirty-seven. So the the question is, you know, the, his his ratings have been remarkably steady throughout the year. And yet there seems to be you know, multiple confirmations that in the last two months they have dropped by eh, roughly six points. So the question is, why? What, what, what is your off-the-top theory? Is, is it because he actually, you know, um, there, there was some event, you know, some people, you know, posited that, you know, maybe his reaction to the death of John McCain in the funeral, that was the event. The other theory would be just the cumulative effect of all of these bad weeks, including, you know, Manafort and Cohen, and then you roll in McCain. And then there's another, which I find very, very intriguing theory, that, that maybe, you know, yeah, it's a little bit of all of those things, but also it's part of, part of partially seasonal, that voters are starting to pay attention now that over the summer months, maybe this has been the background noise, but they're starting to dial in. So w- w- what do you think is going on here? Is this is just noise? Uh, is is the president uh, dropping? Because that obviously is connected with this this new sense of uh, anxiety slash panic that you're hearing from Senate Republicans. I, I, I tend to give that last theory a lot of credibility. Um, it, I do it, too. It suggests, I mean, it, it tracks with what we've kind of seen in other races as well, um, where just engagement goes up as soon as everybody's back from, you know, from their summer vacations. Um, people are paying a little more attention. And I think that uh, events like the John McCain funeral, which we real, I think I said this on this podcast, Charlie. Um, uh, soon after is, uh, I think we sort of, 
had this sense in the kind of political world and certainly here in Washington that um, a lot of this stuff is noise to people and people don't really pay attention. That was – the McCain funeral was something that I really do think broke through more than the other noise um, to the to the rest of the country. It was just something that everybody was able to share and understand and, and kind of share in, uh, in uh, collectively. And – and I think we – I certainly underestimated the way that Trump's actions – people think, oh, well, of course, of course Trump and McCain don't get along. But I don't think that necessarily broke through until the kerfuffle over the flag, the sense that Trump wasn't there and, and the reminder. Um, that all, I think, helped hmm. uh, 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 at the same time that, that the seasonal uh, – the changing of the season and, and getting into election season um, has all sort of compounded um, what everybody's kind of known has been watching over the last 18 months uh, and that can't that can't help one more thing about this it we should just state how remarkable it is that the president is at 32 34 36 percent in approval rating polls and the economy is doing gangbusters it's doing so well and he can with some credibility take credit for that uh, at least on the regulatory side and in signing tax reform and yet, and yet, I think that all of that points to uh, a bad signs for Trump and bad signs for Republicans. It, by the way, this is a really important point because it really reflects how politics has changed from from the era in which you know it's it's the economy stupid. Because if it was the economy stupid, there's no way that his ratings wouldn't be dramatically higher than all of this. So where do you come down on this, Jim? Uh, what what which theory do you buy? I mean, as, as someone or, who or none of the above, <laughs> I, I I buy all of your theories. Uh, but as <laughs> someone like I, I worked on economic policy on the Hill, it, I I understand the importance to voters and uh, how central that is in their sense of well-being and their sense of self-security and everything else. Trump has changed everything, and it, it's it, the era of it's the economy stupid. As, as Mike points out, it's just insane that. With an economy as good as we have right now, that uh, I mean, the first midterm election in a new incumbent president has tends to be bad. I mean, just historically for that president's party. Yeah, right. for that president's party, and we also had just such a good map, especially in the Senate. And I mean, if if we can basically draw it, to draw a blackjack analogy here, I mean, that would be a huge win. But it's it's also a loss because I mean. This would be probably the first great economy that an incumbent president and a majority party in Congress has and basically is just having to work their ass off, if you excuse my French, to save their majority in both sides of the party. Can I – something occurs to me, Charlie and Jim, on this, which is um, the economy may be doing well, but I wonder if – uh, there is a feeling out there, maybe the polls reflect this, or maybe this is something that polls can't really pick up on, a feeling still of anxiety. Like, we, this is really good, but how long can this last? And you do have to wonder if the trade talks over the summer um, haven't done a, a, a great damage to the P- Republican Party's economic message, right? Like, despite all of this great news, despite all the tax cuts that you could point to, um, the feeling that this could all go away and the fact that you even have people in the Republican Party warning their own president that you take these trade actions, that's going to make things collapse. Maybe people are more sophisticated than we give them credit for and, and have the sense that uh, this is this this feels fleeting uh, yeah. and, and maybe mm-hmm. things are not going to be as good as we think they are. No. You know, and and we, we still we still have that hangover, you know, from the 
from the financial crisis 10 years ago. And I know I was thinking, I was talking with Greg Easterbrook about this yesterday. When you think about these two anniversaries, you know, 17 years ago, September 11th, 10 years ago, the financial crisis. And what they both reinforced was the fragility of our world, that we don't do, we don't take things for granted anymore. You know, and on September 11th, we saw, you know, these solid symbols of America, you know, literally melt before our eyes. And then 10 years ago, we saw trillions of dollars of our savings and our 401ks vanish. And I still think that there is that, that kind of cloud, particularly with a financial crisis, that we, we're always looking at, you know, with a little bit more skepticism about uh, these bubbles. And about uh, institutions. You know, right. And, and yeah. all of the institutions. We don't trust. You know, that, that's a breakdown of trust, well, a fundamental breakdown of trust, which is, let's face it, what is the economy based on? It is based on trust. You lose trust. What's left? Well, Charlie, if I may, and I think Mike made a really salient point here, uh, voters are very more sophisticated than we give them credit for. And for all of Trump's personal failings and you know business failings, his blusters, his lies and everything else, I don't think a lot of voters are uh, deluding themselves uh, of the fact that while he may have seen business success, Donald Trump is a cyclical man. He's he's had booms, he's had busts, whether it's in Atlantic City and, and bankruptcies and all these other sorts of things. And I mean, consumer confidence may be doing pretty well right now, but you know that that might be to me something that a lot of voters think. Well, you know, this may be great, but you know, with Donald Trump, he could always just shit the bed. Uh, you know, and yep. well, you know, he, within he the next week. I would I would like to say that that, that some of this uh, the skepticism has to do with the state of the deficit, but as uh, apparently the Republican Party has decided completely, no one cares about deficits. <laughs> it was kind of interesting that deficits Mitt don't Romney, matter, right? Mitt, that Mitt Romney put something out about you know why are Republicans not talking about the deficit? Literally, I think it was the exact day that the Republicans announced, and maybe I'm wrong about the timing here, announced that they were going to uh, try to extend, you know, vote to extend the tax cuts, you know, make, make them permanent, which would add, I don't know how many trillion dollars to the national debt. And we, we got the report this week that we're going to hit a trillion dollars by what, a trillion dollar annual deficit by the end of the year, but nobody cares. Uh, the, I, I do, it does strike me though, that the capacity of the Democrats to blow this, and and I don't mean specific. Well, I only partially mean 2018. I'm thinking more about uh, 2020 and beyond. I have a piece that just went up on the uh, Weekly Standard called "Democrats Behaving Badly," and it's it's about uh, the, the way that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and other Democrats behaved last week, where they sort of embrace this over-the-top emotionalism and theatricality, you know, including making charges that were absolutely bogus and irresponsible. I mean, it's it's not often that even PolitiFact is going to say that a liberal Democrat, you know, said something that was completely false. And whether or not this over-the-top overreach is going to come back and bite them in the behind, it really strikes me that a lot of the stuff we're seeing on the left where the incentive structure seems to be rewarding the most hysterical, most histrionic actors as opposed to the more sober actors really seems very familiar to me, to those of us that watch this happening on <laughs> on on the right. And I thought it was very interesting that Politico had a piece that basically said, yeah, you know, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are basically borrowing from the Trump playbook and making these over-the-top, unsupported allegations, because really, who cares whether it's true? As long as we hate you on the other side, you know, we're going to say whatever it was. And I talk about what happened to Ben Wittes, and I mentioned this on the podcast as well. You know, Ben Wittes is a 
how would you? I mean, I, I describe him as a centrist who works with Democrats, who often works with Democrats. He, he's been con- somewhat conservative, very respected legal community. He tweeted out basically, "Hey, there's lots of reasons why you might, you liberals might want to oppose Brett Kavanaugh, but he's not a liar. Full stop. Uh, don't gin up this, you know, bogus perjury stuff." And he just got absolutely filleted on social media. And so, so, so much for the voices of reason in our in our politics. So I, I am thinking that, 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 that there's a very real possibility that if Democrats take control, if we see the kind of theatrics uh, over the next next two years that we saw last week, that this could really backfire on the Democrats. I, th- I think you're you're right, and your piece is very good, Charlie, for pointing this out because it's something that um, I think is frequently uh, uh, people sort of overcorrect for kind of both sidesism uh, uh, that that the mainstream media has has in the past kind of taken well on this side. On the other hand, the other party has done something like this um, uh, to sort of say, well, of course, what Trump and the Republicans and the conservatives have done uh, is gone so far beyond. Um, but the truth is, is that is that the left has done the same has done the same thing, and I think we there there's problems of leadership, there's problems of people who should say something or who are in positions of power using that irresponsibly. But let's not let the voters and the American people off the hook. There's something going on here. We were talking about lack of faith in institutions. There's a feeling, I think, that is real that these politicians are actually responding to or reflective of uh, that. Uh, that that things are that the the, the center cannot hold that mm-hmm. this really is the last chance uh, for both sides. I think the, the the freak out over Brett Kavanaugh is is a perfect example of this. I think the left really does believe institutionally, like the sort of the left institutions and the kind of uh, 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 the the people who who make up the media on the left, the, the the these various interest groups. They feel like this is their last chance. There's a, which is which is odd because they normally have the sense that history is sort of bending toward them. I think the Donald Trump election kind of um, broke them of that, and they have sort of fallen into the same uh, trap that I think uh, the people of the Flight 93 election uh, have, have so fallen too. into, which is this is the, America as we know it is over unless we do uh, radical things in order uh, to save it. No, and 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 that again. That's why it's 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 so familiar to me to 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 see that sort of thing. You know, they and and on the left. You know, I mean, look. Let's face it. You know, publications like uh, like 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 ours have engaged in you know massive introspection about you know the 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 the, the problems of the conservative movement, where we went wrong, what we missed. Um, you know, how do you rebuild this? Uh, what what is the course correction? But I'm noticing on the left, there's real resistance at any kind of introspection. And if you suggest that you know there are equivalents on the left to what's happened on the right, the blowback is really epic. Um, that that you know it really is arch heresy to suggest there's any sort of moral equivalency, which basically tells me that they're not willing to. Uh, acknowledge that hey here's a very real danger and you know it's not just that they misread uh, the you know the the mood of the country back in 2016 you look back through the obama years with the exception of barack obama himself the democratic party has been on a you know slow motion meltdown for much of the last decade and you think about how many governorships they've lost state legislatures so th- there ought to be I would think a little bit more concerned about policing their borders and cleaning up their messes than I think that that, that there is. And uh, you guys are too young to remember the whole Paul Wellstone funeral. Do you oh, I remember that. that. I remember hearing that. Oh, it was. I mean, I, I remember watching it. 
And this is the analogy that I use about the, you know, the dangers of too much woke emotionalism. You know, everybody, you know, obviously, you know, people were, you know, very upset about this was this was the Democratic Minnesota senator from Minnesota who died in a plane crash in a plane crash right before the 2002 election. And people were very, very upset about it. And uh, they they held this uh, this memorial service that turned into a really rather bitterly partisan pep rally. Uh, Trent Lott was the Republican Senate leader at the time. He comes in and he gets booed. It was very, very partisan. Do it for Paul. Do it for Paul, I remember. Who's that? Ted Kennedy? Somebody said that. And everyone assumed, I mean, they thought that they were going to be able to ride this emotion, you know, uh, and and they 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 plucked uh, they plucked former Vice President Walter Mondale, this iconic figure, uh, to to run for Wellstone seat, and instead the whole thing blew up in their face. Uh, I don't know that it would be fair to say that the funeral, uh, you know, caused him you know caused his defeat, but but he went down to defeat in an off year election to Norm Coleman, who went on to lose to Al Franken. I, Six I, years later, you know. I, I I will jump out on a limb here and say, I mean, someone from the the Midwest who, I mean, I think I was a senior in high school or a freshman in college when when Wellstone died. Wellstone was not as was not so nationally well known as like Hubert Humphrey or all you know a, a lot of his forebears, and you know this this kind of nationalizing of of this funeral and turning it into this pep rally, I think, motivated a lot of folks, and then you know that's how you get Norm Coleman. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, before that's this is how you got Trump. This is how you got Norm Coleman. And Norm Norm Coleman was an excellent senator and a, and a bright and nice guy. Um, but you know, you 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 just shouldn't be turning funeral services but, into political but rallies. But I, I, I think to your point, Charlie, I think things are different now. Um, uh, the incentive structure actually it actually rewards. I wonder if I mean it's a weird and kind of morbid thought experiment. But if that Pell Wallstone funeral type thing happened. Uh, today, I don't know if it would have the same effect that you suggest, and it sort of cuts against the point of your post. But I, I, I mean, and I, I sort of worry a little bit that um, actually what's rewarded uh, in in the political system now is sort of uh, doing the things and saying the things and going out on the limbs that uh, before we would have thought. Well, there's no way uh, you can get away with that. That people sort of uh, punish that. I I don't know if that's operative anymore, and that's. that's that's really a big concern. Uh, that is uh, that is a big concern. By the way, uh, j- just since I, I I tweeted out my my piece about uh, the Democrats behaving badly, you can imagine that about ninety nine percent of the response, you know, is from folks on the left saying, you know, and damn right, you know, and until you know, and, and, and until the apocalypse is over, we, we, we will adopt any tactic whatsoever. Yeah, there you go. So uh, if, if, if 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 there's any belief out there that uh, the folks on the left will go, you know, maybe we ought to think about this. Maybe you know, putting out things that are you know over the top and extreme, you know, is not the best tactic. Maybe it doesn't really help the resistance. Uh, That's not the response I think anybody should expect. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me, Jim Swift and Michael Warren of the Weekly Standard. Uh, I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.